Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Today's episode is sponsored by Stamps.com and Squarespace. Hello everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. As many of you probably noticed, last week's episode has struck me to my core. Since speaking to Edward, I've spent the last week working from dawn till dusk researching the Smith County justice system. I keep finding that one case leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to a pattern. This case that we're working on is not just about Edward Eights anymore. It's not just about Kenny Snow or Carrie Max Cook. After hearing Kenny and Ed's stories firsthand and speaking with Kerry Max Cook about what happened to him in Smith County and reading about countless other cases of misconduct in that system, I am determined to put a stop to it. After recording the interview that you heard last week with Edward Aids, I spoke to him about his family. I wanted to know how to get in touch with his mother, his wife, his friends, and his response was devastating. Edward Aids has lost everything. He told me he doesn't even know if he's still married. He knows that after several years went by that his ex-wife had filed for divorce or started that process, but he said that he honestly doesn't even know if he's married anymore. He was very close with his brother, and he hasn't heard from him in years. He only has phone contact with his mom. He also hasn't seen her face in several years. He's lost contact with all of his friends. He's just been sitting in that prison, waiting until his sentence ends, which will be the end of his life. I refuse to allow this to happen to Edward Aids or Kenny Snow, or anyone else that is innocent sitting in a Texas prison as a result of Smith County misconduct. My heels are dug in in Smith County, and I'm not going anywhere until there is real reform and change. I've literally read through thousands of pages of documents over the last week. I have a ton of information about Smith County sprawled out all across my desk. I'm going to do my best to try to keep this as linear as possible, but I want to touch on several different items throughout this episode. I first want to address a writ of habeas corpus that Edward Eights filed in 2010. This filing was requesting post-conviction relief based on the Brady violation that the state suppressed the fact that Kenny Snow was compensated for his testimony in Edward Eights' trial. After reading through the original writ, it seemed like this would be open and shut. I think that all of us who have been following this case are well aware of the fact that Kenny Snow was given a deal in order to testify against Edward Eights. That fact was not disclosed. That's a Brady violation, which should have resulted in a new trial. But as I'm sure you figured out by now, that obviously wasn't the case. Kenny Snow had come forward to Edward Eights' attorneys offering to help them while he was a free man. It was in 2001 where the first documentation that Kenny wanted to make things right for what he had done to Edward Eights. This was while he was still out on adjudicated probation. 
In 2005, Kenny Snow signed a written affidavit and gave it to Ace's attorney. The affidavit states exactly what has been told to you throughout this case. It says that he was approached by Dennis Murphy and David Dobbs and was told that if he could help them get a conviction against Edward Ates, that he would be given probation and wouldn't do any prison time. It states that Snow really did overhear a man named Francis Johnson telling Edward Ates that he had been in Eleanor Griffin's house the night she was murdered and that they had had an altercation. Kenny had agreed to help out Edward Ates and actually gave a recorded statement to his attorney to testify on his behalf. The affidavit says that Dobbs and Murphy told him that if he testified for Eights, that he would be given a 99-year sentence. They then devised a plan for Kenny to flip the story and claim that Edward Eights asked him to lie for him and paid him to do so. And you're all familiar with the rest of the story. But the bottom line is, Kenny Snow's affidavit was not proof enough for the Smith County judge that Kenny Snow was given a deal. The affidavit made very clear that he was told that if he did this, he would be given probation. And also that David Dobbs had told him they would not reduce the plea to writing because they wanted Kenny to be able to testify that he was not given a deal for his testimony. In 2010, Kenny Snow had agreed to go to this hearing and testify on Eight's behalf. But when he got to the jail, he was told that if he testified and recanted his original testimony, that he would be charged with two counts of aggravated perjury and that both of those counts would come with a 99-year sentence added to his already current sentence of 40 years. This threat was effective in scaring Kenny off. He backed out and decided not to testify. H's legal team hoped that the affidavit would be enough, but the judge didn't see it that way and denied any relief. In reading through all these documents, I came across one of the most frustrating parts of Edward H's case. There actually is a smoking gun. While in jail, Kenny Snow had written a letter to his attorney, Brandon Body, telling him about the deal that he had made with David Dobbs. This was prior to Edward Eight's trial. At Eight's trial, his defense tried to offer this into evidence as Exhibit 17. The prosecution objected to its admittance, claiming that it was not admissible due to attorney-client privilege between Kenny Snow and his attorney. At the time, Kenny's attorney was not in the courtroom. He was asked if he wanted to waive his right to attorney-client privilege. He said that he wanted his lawyer to answer that question, and eventually Kenny's attorney claimed that that letter should be covered by attorney-client privilege and it was ordered sealed by the judge, which means I haven't even seen this letter. It was sealed. It is not in the evidence box for Edward Eight's case. The jury in Eight's trial never heard any of this. They never knew that this letter even existed. When Eight's filed the writ in 2010, his attorney requested that the letter be brought back into evidence for the appeal. But the state said that they could not produce Exhibit 17, that they couldn't find it. They thought maybe it had been sent up to the State Court of Appeals. Eventually, Kenny Snow's original attorney, Brandon Body, was contacted about the letter and he was able to locate the original, but he said that he could not release it unless Kenny Snow waived the attorney-client privilege. There is nothing on record at this point saying whether Kenny was even contacted to ask if he was willing to waive that privilege. But I do know that he is willing to waive it today. Unfortunately, I spoke with Brandon Body a couple of weeks ago about this case. I'm not sure what to think about him. There are articles written about him in early 2000 saying that he was a bulldog of a defense attorney back in the early 2000s, that he was constantly at odds with Jack Skeen and David Dobbs and filed and won many motions against the two for suppressing evidence. But when I asked him about Kenny's case, he remembered Kenny right away. 
He told me that at one point, Kenny Snow had filed a bar complaint of some kind about him, but he said that he never had anything to do with his deal in the Edward Eights case. He said that he was never in the courtroom, and even said that he found it really odd that Dobbs never contacted him about what was going on in that case. I asked him at that point, now mind you, this is before I found all of this current information, if he still had his original file from Kenny Snow's case. He told me that that was 20 years ago and that he's sure he doesn't. But then when I was reading the findings of fact in the 2010 post-conviction relief hearing, it clearly states that Brandon Body was with Kenny Snow at Edward Aids's trial. He's the one that said that the attorney-client privilege couldn't be waived. And furthermore, that in 2010, less than six years ago, he still had that original copy. Mr. Body doesn't work in Smith County anymore, and if I understand correctly, I believe he's now actually a prosecutor in another county. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but my intention is to reach out to him again and hope to jog his memory about these issues. If he does indeed still have that file and still has that original letter, I believe that we might be able to get this case back into court based on that same Brady violation with the letter as the smoking gun and with Kenny Snow testifying. I have the Texas Tech School of Law legal team working on researching this issue as we speak. I've also been on the phone with Michael Ware, the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas. He's very interested in taking on Edward Eight's case. And we talked briefly last week about getting the DNA tested. And Michael brought up a good point. If the state already presented at the trial that the blood and semen found at the scene did not match Edward Eight's blood type, and therefore he is excluded as the donor, then testing that DNA will not do us any good, because the jury already heard that it didn't belong to him. So in order for us to go any further, we need a lot of documentation. I've already requested the trial transcripts, and they should be being generated shortly, and I've requested the full police file from the Smith County Sheriff's Department, including all reports, all investigative notes, crime scene photos, everything. One thing that I know was never tested and not used in trial was the DNA that was taken from underneath Elnora Griffin's fingernails. If that evidence still exists, we can absolutely get that tested, and that should be enough of a smoking gun for a full exoneration. If it doesn't exist, then we're back to the blood and semen. But even if it was used at trial, we're not necessarily out of the game there either. For those of you that listen to Serial, which I'm sure is most of you, you remember Deidre Enright explaining to Sarah Koenig that she believed the killer could have been Ronald Lee Moore or a serial killer passing through the area. And remember when she said, big picture, Sarah, big picture? Well, I understand what she meant by that now. Just testing that DNA and proving that it was not Edward Eights may not help us if it was presented at trial as already not being Edward Eights, and the prosecution explained that away. But if we have a viable alternative suspect, and we can get the court to allow it to be tested against them or ran through the CODIS system, and it hits someone else, that could be enough to exonerate. So we have a lot of different options and a lot of different directions to go in Edward Eight's case. And next week, when I go to Tyler for Carrie Max Cook's hearing, I'll be sorting through all the court documents that exist there as well as the evidence box again to really launch forward with a full investigation on this case. While we're on the topic of Carrie Max Cook, I mentioned this to you all a few weeks back, but I want to make another request. I'm requesting that any of you who can possibly be in Tyler, Texas on April 12th to show up at the courthouse to support Carrie Max Cook. This has been a 40-year battle for Carrie, and he's finally getting a shot at a full exoneration. I want as many people there as possible so that our voices can be heard and that the residents of Tyler and the media can see the amount of support that he has. 
I'd also request that between now and then, any of you who have a few minutes, I need you to write to all of the local media in Tyler. You can send your statements in as letters to the editor or however you want to. Some of them have Facebook pages, online news sources. But please post your support for Kerry Max Cook's exoneration to the Tyler Morning Telegraph, the Dallas Morning News, and Texas Monthly. Ask that Smith County District Attorney's Office drop the opposition to the exoneration and end 40 years of legal chicanery and oppression in the worst case of wrongdoing in Texas history. Kerry's case is tragic. If you're not familiar with it, go back and listen to episode 202, where I discussed it in detail. In order to take down the Smith County injustice system, we can't focus only on one person or one case. This has to be a sweeping attack from all angles and all flanks. Carrie Max Cook's case is critical to Edward Eight's case and Kenny Snow's case, and I'm sure several others along the way. I'll get into a little bit more detail about what's going on in Mr. Cook's case next week. I was going to take the week off next week. It's spring break here, and I'm going to be out of town with my kids, so I'll warn you all in advance. It'll be a shorter episode. Like I said, I was going to take the week off. But instead, I want to make sure I get something out to you guys every week. So I'm going to put something together as quickly as I can regarding Carrie Max Cook's case. Please listen to it. Focus in on it. Let's get behind Carrie and support him. And remember, big picture, listeners. Big picture. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. After five months of research in three months of reporting on this case, I'm finally ready to make a statement that I've been hesitating to make. I come to every case with no preconceived notions and no bias. I try to remove emotion and only look at the facts to make a determination. This week, I found one tiny detail that has connected the last dot in the Kenny Snow case. I am now completely comfortable saying that I believe that Kenny Snow is innocent. Not just that he was treated unfairly, not just that there was misconduct. I believe he's innocent. It's kind of amazing how these things work out. Spinesha Rains, Kenny's niece, brought this case to my attention. That led me to speaking with his Aunt Layola, where I got some more information on the case. Circled back to Kimberly Rains, Kenny's sister. I spoke with Kenny, I started pulling files, started reading documents. Speaking with Kenny led me to speak with Dennis Murphy, and then later led me to speak with the victim, Bill Cole. And it's really kind of a strange situation. Imagine yourself in my position, calling a man who believed he had been assaulted and robbed by Kenny Snow, 19 years later, and telling him that I'm working to investigate the case because Kenny claims he has a wrongful conviction. It's not a comfortable phone call to make. And I'll be honest with you, it's not a phone call that I wanted to make. I knew it would be uncomfortable. I knew Bill Cole would be pissed, and he was. But somehow, through the many conversations I had with Bill Cole, coupled with the information I got from Dennis Murphy about the gold tooth, I started to think maybe this really wasn't Kenny Snow who did this. And then after that, I was able to piece together a little piece of information from Bill 
when he said that he never knew what happened to Kenny after he was arrested. And then coupled that with some short excerpts from a couple of letters from Kenny where he was going on about, if I supposedly robbed this man, why would he stand up in court and agree to me only be given probation? So that led us to discovering that there was an imposter Bill Cole put in the courtroom during Kenny's sentencing hearing. And sure, that meant there were some shenanigans going on in Smith County, but I couldn't figure out what it really meant. But then Kenny's insistence to me that we need to help Edward Eights led me to contacting Ed. That led me to pulling all of his files. And then while reading the findings of fact and conclusions of law for his writ filed in 2010, I was able to find that final piece of this puzzle. I never saw this anywhere in any of Kenny's case files, but it was in Edward Eight's file. On the third page of the decision by the judge, in paragraph number 16, it states while discussing Kenny's open plea deal, quote, The state also abandoned the deadly weapon allegation in the aggravated robbery case, and it gives Kenny's cause number, which the record indicates was due to not being able to locate the victim in that case for trial. Some of you get it and some of you are confused. Kenny's case at one point was set up for jury selection. This is before Kenny struck the deal regarding Edward Eights. They were telling him that they were going to take him to trial, but they stated that they could not locate the victim in the aggravated robbery case for the trial. That victim was Juan Martinez. The claim that Juan Martinez could not be located is preposterous. He owned Ricky Dealer's used cars. He worked there every single day. The police knew where he lived. It's documented in the police reports that on a couple of occasions they went to his house. His son has told me that his dad continued to operate the business after this happened. They didn't move. And the once he had identified someone in the mugshot book, which again he says was only one time, even though the police reports say that it was three times, they were never contacted by anybody from the sheriff's department or the court system ever again. Or excuse me, not the sheriff's department, the Tyler City Police Department. That one occurred in Tyler City. So what does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, it explains everything. I knew that the state had sent somebody up to the stand to pose as Bill Cole, but I couldn't figure out why Bill and why not Juan Martinez, or why not both. And if they couldn't get Bill Cole to come up on the stand, why put anybody on the stand at all? They could have just said they couldn't locate either victim. Well, the problem is that it was documented in the police report that Juan Martinez did not speak English, and that he had to have his son translate for him. With what I've learned about the Smith County justice system, and I've said on the show several times, is that Tyler is a great place to live if you are a rich, white person. David Dobbs does not have a rapport with the minorities. He probably didn't have a buddy that he could come stand up on the stand that happened to be Mexican and spoke fluent Spanish, and that maybe had a son that could translate for him. So they couldn't find an imposter for Juan Martinez. Now Bill Cole a white guy that works all the way up in Swan and lives out in the country, they could take a gamble that none of the few people in that courtroom knew who Bill really was. But again, why go through all that trouble? And the answer is they needed to go through all that trouble because they were giving Kenny Snow a ridiculous sentence. The mandatory minimum for a habitual offender, which Kenny Snow qualifies as because he already was convicted of another felony, is 25 years in prison and up to 99 years. So how do they justify only giving him 10 years adjudicated probation? The answer to that is, the victim showed up and said that he was okay with it. Now remember that David Dobbs was not prosecuting Kenny's case. Jack Skeen was the district attorney. Kenny says that he knows Jack Skeen was involved in the cover-up, and the entire scandal for that matter, and he believes that the judge was in on it too. 
And I have to say that I believe that that has to be the case. Smith County is known for giving out harsh punishments, and they don't let a repeat offender convicted felon off on probation when they've pled guilty to a robbery and an aggravated robbery. But there was a horse and pony show. One victim, who owned a business in town and lived in town, couldn't be located, but the other one showed up and said that he was fine with a lighter sentence. So this accomplished their justification for not sending Kenny to prison, which allowed him to stay out and keep boxing for Joe Costello and Johnny Johnson. But that's not why I believe that Kenny is innocent. My reasoning is a simple analysis of basic human behavior. I know that there was an imposter put on that stand. I know that Juan Martinez was intentionally not let into that room. But the question becomes, why did David Dobbs and Jack Skeen believe they could get away with putting an imposter on that stand in that courtroom? If Kenny Snow was guilty, he knows who he robbed. If he had robbed a six foot one, 300-pound, gray-haired man, the second a five-foot-eight, black-haired guy with a mustache and glasses walked into that courtroom, Kenny would have immediately thrown a fit. But the only reason that Jack Skeen and David Dobbs were able to get away with bringing an imposter in to serve that role, I believe could have only been because they knew that Kenny Snow did not actually rob that store. They knew that he would have no idea who Bill Cole really was. And since they knew that he was actually innocent, they could get away with the most disgusting example of prosecutorial misconduct I have ever heard of. And now the question is, what are we going to do about it? In the Smith County court system, this type of behavior is not the exception. It is the rule. It's how they operate. I want to introduce you to another case. This case goes all the way back to December 26, 1979. On that date, the owner of a fireworks stand was robbed in the middle of the night and shot between the eyes. A man named Andrew Lee Mitchell Jr. was convicted of that robbery and murder on February 17, 1981. Now Judge Jack Skeen prosecuted the case. Mitchell was convicted based on the testimony of his 18-year-old son and their friend, a man named Edward Owens. These two confessed and testified to being accomplices in this robbery and murder. This is the way Smith County operates. Now before I give you the details of how that went down, let me explain to you why Andrew Mitchell was released in 1999. Andrew's son Anthony and Ed Owens both testified that they went to the fireworks store between 9 and 9.30, robbed the man of the 100 or $150 that he had in a cigar box, and Anthony said that they had to kill him because he would recognize them and shot him in the head. Anthony and Owens led the police to where they had buried the shell casings, they gave them the cigar box that had been stolen, seemed like an open and shut case. Mitchell was sentenced to death. It was a pretty simple case at trial. The prosecutors were able to corroborate everything that Ed and Anthony had told them. They told them that by 10 p.m., the three of them had went to some bar, and then Andrew spent the rest of the night back at the hotel getting high on heroin with some friends. All of that was corroborated, and it was Andrew's word against theirs. And why would they confess? And why would an 18-year-old man testify against his own father if he hadn't actually committed the crime? The jury had no problem convicting. But two days before Andrew Mitchell was going to be executed, it was discovered that the prosecution had suppressed evidence. The night that this murder occurred, a game warden 
had driven past the fireworks stand and saw the man who was killed sitting in a chair watching TV hours after Andrew Mitchell was confirmed to have been at a bar and in his hotel, which was also hours after the two accomplices had testified that he was already shot in the head and laying on the floor. A couple hours later, at nearly 1 o'clock in the morning, a Smith County deputy also drove past the fireworks stand and saw the same man sitting in his chair watching TV. Alive. Both officers reported this to the lead detective, and the deputy, after the body had been found in the fireworks stand the next morning, even reduced the statement to writing. But these two statements were never turned over to the defense. Mitchell's conviction was turned over on a Brady violation and he subsequently filed a $40,000 lawsuit and won. In the meantime, the Smith County justice system refused to let it go, and they insisted they were going to retry Andrew Mitchell. Even though this was not just a simple matter of a Brady violation, these statements actually proved Andrew Mitchell's innocence. He could not have murdered this man. His time was accounted for from 10 p.m. all the way through the next morning by several witnesses. It was documented and known that the victim was still alive up till at least 12.30 a.m. He could not have committed the murder. But as Smith County does, they threaten Andrew with taking him back to trial and pursuing the death penalty again. Or they offered him a plea bargain. He eventually pled to conspiracy to commit murder. It was given a 31-year sentence. And with time served, he was released in early 1999 to a halfway house. He's now living out his life a free man, still a convicted felon. This would be a confusing case anywhere but Smith County, but in Smith County it makes perfect sense. This is how these people operate. It's conviction at all costs. Now I haven't seen the police files or gotten any further into this case other than reading what I could find online. I was told to check out this case by Edward Aids, but what it appears happened is the police, for some reason, suspected Anthony Mitchell and Edward Owens of committing this murder. And the general consensus seems to be that they did actually commit the murder. So why not just prosecute them? Why go after Andrew? The reason is simple. It's all about leverage, and it's all about getting a conviction. Find a poor black man that can't defend himself and attack. So taking Edward Owens and Anthony Mitchell to trial would have been a risk for the prosecution. It seems like they didn't have any evidence at least not enough to convict. They didn't have the cigar box, they didn't have the gun, they didn't have the shell casings, so maybe they could have convicted them, but maybe not. So they did what they do. They offered them a deal. Edward Owens was given immunity if he would testify that Andrew Mitchell committed the murder, meaning he was not prosecuted at all. He walked free. And Anthony Mitchell, Andrew's son, was offered 10 years probated. They leaned on these young men, they threatened them, and they allowed them to get away with murder if they would help them convict someone else. And they did just that. This is the same type of tragic story, even worse than the Edward Aids Kenny Snow situation. The Smith County injustice system is skilled at getting someone locked up for every crime that's committed. And as long as they have an unlimited well of poor minorities to throw behind bars, they will continue to be able to boast about their high conviction rates and their long sentences. And again I say, what are we going to do about it? And the answer is, we're going to put a stop to it. Before I close this week, I want to play a voicemail that was left for me by listener Sonny Levine. Sonny is a longtime listener. He's been with me since the very beginning and has always been very active, engaged, and sending in emails. 
and after last week's episode, Sonny felt compelled to give me a call. And for those of you that are not aware, on the truthandjusticepod.com website, under the Contact Me page, there is a phone number listed there. It's a phone number that is kept off. It's a Google Voice transfer number, but it's a place where you can call and leave a voicemail if you ever feel the need to do so. But for now, I want you to hear Sonny's message to me. Hi, Bob. This is uh, Sonny Levine. I'm one of your uh, followers, and I just got done listening to your uh, episode today. And um, damn, I've never heard you sound so defeated, even though you're not, but you just sound so down. So I figured I'd give you a call and uh, tell you to keep going. You're doing really good. We're making progress, and eventually things will work out. Have a good one. Let me first say to Sonny, because I know that he's listening, how much I really appreciate you taking the time to send me that voicemail. This has been a crazy, unique, one-of-a-kind journey, I think, for all of us. I don't think anything like this has ever been done before. So many people from all around the world all uniting and working together for the common good, for one cause. I've told you all several times before, when you've asked how you can help, that there are a lot of ways to help. But every time somebody sends me an encouraging message or email or voicemail or tweet, that is a huge help. It adds fuel to a fire, a fire that is burning deep inside of me. While I appreciate Sonny's message, he's misread my emotions. I'm not feeling down or hopeless. In fact, I'm feeling quite the opposite. I am saddened by the devastation that has occurred to all of these people. Edward Eight's situation in particular just absolutely breaks my heart. That sadness has been turned into fury. I'm a patient man. I'm a calm man. I keep my cool. I choose my battles. As far as I'm concerned, the line has been drawn in the sand in Smith County. One of my listeners, Terry Stone, tweeted me this quote by Benjamin Franklin. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. I believe that that is the state that we are finally in. People from around the world are ready to stand up and fight. We're ready to fight oppression. We're ready to fight racism. We're ready to fight against the injustices that are occurring in Smith County, Texas. There are many heads to this beast, and I am ready to start lopping them off one at a time until the beast falls. First and foremost on my list is David Dobbs. Every single case that I come across, every instance of corruption, David Dobbs' name has been written all over every one of them. I now know two people personally that have had their lives destroyed by this man. And a third is Kerry Max Cook, who after stepping away from the county for his own private practice, David Dobbs has been sworn back in to help fight against Kerry Max Cook's exoneration, even though the DNA evidence proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is innocent of this crime. Tyler, Texas needs to know, the state of Texas, this country, the world needs to know who David Dobbs is and what he stands for. God only knows how many lives he's ruined. And I know that he's listening right now. And David, this is your fair warning. I am coming to Tyler, Texas with hell and fury and an army behind me. And I will not rest until you are behind bars for your crimes against humanity. You have spent your entire professional life destroying lives by exploiting other human beings. And you're about to get a taste of your own medicine. The only difference is we will take you down with truth and we will bring real justice to Smith County.
Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing this episode. Thank you to today's sponsors, Stamps.com and Squarespace, for supporting the program. Thank you to all of you for all of your support and engagement. Keep in touch at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send me new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can tweet at me at truthjusticepod or follow the Truth and Justice Facebook page. Stay engaged. Keep in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.